You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Later in the program, we have Artbeat, a segment where host Dr. Felice Chichek poses questions to artists, activists, and educators about their work. In today's segment, Dr. Chichek speaks with Professor Emily Bobo about her poetry. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have your weekly Consumer Watchdog segment, Better Beware. Stay tuned for today's episode, Robocalls Never End, in the bottom of our program. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. This week, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb issued a proclamation declaring the week of September 19th to the 24th as Pollution Prevention Week in the state. The goal of this proclamation is to encourage Hoosiers to take actions to implement pollution prevention practices in their everyday lives. By doing so, Hoosiers can help make the air, land, and water cleaner throughout the state. This week also includes the 24th annual Indiana Pollution Prevention Conference and Trade Show, which is an open conference that encourages the sharing of ideas and experiences that can help promote more environmentally sustainable practices. Three Superfund sites in Bloomington have been removed from the Environmental Protection Agency's cleaning list, as the agency states that the PCB, otherwise known as polychlorinated biphenyls, tainted sites have been successfully cleaned. These areas were polluted by Westinghouse Electric Corporation, which operated limestone quarry pits, and the pollution came from the PCB-contaminated capacitors. These chemicals have the potential to cause cancer and damage the human nervous and reproductive systems. The EPA will continue to monitor the sites to ensure that there are no potential pollutants left. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been ordered by a federal court to add the lake sturgeon, an ancient species of fish that lives in the Ohio River Basin, to the federally protected species list. The East Fork of the White River is where the last population of the species resides in the state, and their population has decreased over time due to pollution and the construction of dams. Multiple environmental organizations have encouraged this decision due to the importance of preserving the species before the genetic makeup of the population becomes too similar and thus less viable for survival. This process is likely to take another year before the full protections come into effect if the species is indeed added. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapple. Monroe County Commissioners heard the Seven Oaks Classical School appeal at the September 20th meeting. According to Commissioner Julie Thomas, the citation for not complying with the mask mandate was issued on August 19th, 2021. 
Seven Oaks then filed an appeal on August 26th. She shared that the appeal was based on three points. Point one, the enforcing of the health order would have an adverse impact on students who are experiencing a disability and those who uh, and those who are facing potential disability. Point two, the compelling interest in education, maintaining the emotional and social well-being of students, as well as maintaining a health partnership with parents justifies deviation from the health order and that school um, 2022 COVID protocols ensures public health. And point three, that the emergency health order does not apply to schools. The purpose of this hearing today is to determine if, based on the factual basis for the citation, the school has proven it more likely than not that any of the following are present. One, that enforcing the citation would have an impact on students experiencing disability and that those impacts outweigh the risks contemplated by the emergency health order. Or two, that enforcing the citation would materially impact a compelling interest that justifies deviation from the emergency health order and that the school has taken measures that ensures the public health. Or three, the emergency health order does not apply to Seven Oaks Classical School. Headmaster Dr. Stephen Shipp provided various reasons for why Seven Oaks should be exempted from enforcing the mask mandate surrounding the well-being of the students and the impact that masks have on their ability to learn. Our concern for well-being extends not only to the physical health, but also to the social and emotional health of our students. This compelling interest, together with the evidence for the negative impacts of prolonged mask wearing on students' academic, physical, psychological, and social-emotional well-being, and the limited effectiveness of masks in a real-world school environment, suggests that it, it may be reasonable to grant the school's appeal. Attorney Margie Rice questioned Dr. Shipp about the school's collaboration with the Board of Health and whether or not there had been any communication between the school and the Board of Health Director Penny Cottle. And I, um, I will concede for the record that people with disabilities, there's an exception written into, into the local health regulation to give an exception for people with disabilities who have speech or hearing impairments. Let me ask you, and, and that's that's certainly an exception that you could take advantage of, and those children with legitimate speech and hearing uh, limitations would not have to wear a mask. Have you ever tried those clear surgical masks, the surgical masks with a clear opening so that um, so that kids can see, you know, a mouth moving or the teacher can see the child's mouth moving? Have you tried those at your school? Some have. Um... And, and Penny Cottle, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't she send you information about those masks? She recently did, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, is that um, something that you think you could implement in your school that would help both um, to help you comply with the mask man- mandate if it stays in effect and be able yeah. to, uh, is that a workable uh, solution to that problem? When Chip asked Cottle about whether or not Seven Oaks had reported a distinctly higher rate of COVID-19 cases than surrounding schools, Cottle said that the school had not. The commissioners decided that they needed more time to review all of the information provided. A final vote and written decision will be made by October 5th. Now it's time for Artbeat, a segment where host Dr. Felice Chichek 
poses questions to artists, activists, and educators about their work. In today's segment, Dr. Chichek speaks with Professor Emily Bobo about her poetry. Dr. Chichek has more. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Phyllis Chichek at WFHB. My guest today is Professor Emily Bobo from Ivy Tech Community College. Welcome back to Artbeat. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we haven't seen each other over a year. No. And uh, we all had different ways of isolating and surviving. How are you doing? I'm currently doing well. If you'd asked me that a few months ago, I may have had a different answer. First three months of COVID, I coped with food. I eventually moved from eating my despair and anxiety to walking my despair and anxiety. I think that going back to nature has been a coping mechanism for a lot of us. I mean, myself included. So what's the function or the role of poetry in your life? Like, were you able to have space to write? Uh, was that an outlet or is that something was hard to do? Um, it, was, it was really hard to do. At the, the beginning, I was part of a, a writing group with two other professors at Ivy Tech and a former writing student of ours. And we tried to write individual pieces and then share them together. And we quickly found that that was asking too much of ourselves and each other. And then we, we started sharing a single writing project where we would write pieces of it. And that was really great. And it lasted for all of one, we got one piece written, but it was so beautiful. But naming what was happening, naming how many people had died, naming all of our anxieties and fears in that way was just too much while we were living it, I think. Um, you were still too close emotionally. Yeah. And so we made this beautiful piece and then we disbanded. We didn't all get back together again after that, I don't think. It was just too much. And I've tried writing in bits and pieces with my students, but I haven't really been able to write anything cohesive since then. And I, I wonder if it's partly that I am just so in it and living it right now that I can't filter it yet. I came to poetry early on as a child as a way to make sense of my life and what I was seeing in my home and in my community. And I think that more recently I have been using fiction and creative nonfiction um, in similar ways to how I had used poetry before, but in some ways it's allowing my reader more access to my stories when I use those other genres. When I write poetry, sometimes it can be isolating for the reader and cryptic. And I haven't gotten to the point where I can give all the pieces in a poem in the way that I find is available in stories, in fiction and creative nonfiction. I think there's also a level of safety in those other genres that I haven't felt in poetry because in poetry, even though the reader might not understand everything in there fully I do and I feel very vulnerable I feel very exposed in a poem in a way that in fiction I can get closer to the reader without having to expose as much of myself with the fiction you can have some veil some layers between you and the reader but in poetry it's more raw emotions yes and ironically though the reader feels closer to me 
<laughs> when they're reading the story than when they read the poem because of, um, I don't know, that being able to translate what's inner to the outer. And it feels very raw to me in poems in a way that it doesn't in fiction. So for example, the, the last book that I wrote was um, some retellings of Grimm's original fairy tales. And I collaborated with Professor Amy Breyer. She did some imagery that go with it, some artwork. And for me, those tales are very political. They're very creative, but they're also very cerebral. They're very clever. And I was able to be creative without having to feel completely exposed personally. And that felt really liberating. And I think that as female creators, females in general, whenever we create work and we put it out there, there isn't just the, well, how good is the work and the discussion of the work. There's also the discussion of the female who created the work and, well, who is this female and has she earned the right to create work and what are her experiences? What's her expertise? And, you know, well, what does she look like? Well, what was she wearing? You know, like the conversation goes wildly askew and isn't just about the work. So work isn't enough. She has to justify being there. Yes. So her existence or presence is questioned and has to be revalidated. Yes. That's a lot of work. I've noticed that a lot of conversations that I've had with people about my work, it's not about the techniques. It's about, well, did this really happen to you? Or like, they want to go into the autobiography of it and not stick with the poem itself. They want, was this really true? What's your relationship like with your mother? Or like, and they, they try to relate to you as a female rather than a poet. Yeah. And, or if they've heard me read poetry as opposed to read my work on the page, then the conversation is very different as well. It's about my performance of it as opposed to the poem or the work itself. It becomes about the way I delivered it. Again, what I was wearing. Oh, I love your haircut. Or, you know, how how I pronounce the words, the rhythm, the pacing. Again, as opposed to the poem itself. And for example, five or six years ago now, I wrote a poem called Rape Fugue. And it's probably one of the most difficult poems I've ever written. It threaded a local news story about a baby who had been raped and murdered in Spencer, Indiana. And the story felt very personal to me for two reasons. One, the grandmother was a student at Ivy Tech. She was in and out of the English hallway. She wasn't my student, she was a student. And I would hear her come and talk to her instructor and I would hear her sobbing in the hallway every day. And so her grief was this palpable thing that I met every day when I went to work. And um, the second reason that it really resonated was that in my family, my, my great-grandfather raped his daughter, and then my grandfather raped his daughter. And I can remember a conversation when my father came to talk to me. I was home from college for a visit and he was telling me about his memory of being in the home when his father, my grandfather, raped his sister, my aunt. And he said everyone was there, the whole family was there. My grandmother was uh, making a stew and he had lost the memory for a couple of decades and he hadn't remembered until his sister came to him in her 50s and said, 
why did you do anything? Why, why didn't anyone stop him? And he said he, he literally had forgotten it until she asked that question. And in that conversation, I just felt him wanting my gratitude to him that he hadn't done this to me, that he had abandoned me, but he hadn't done that to me. So wasn't I grateful? And, and where do you begin with that? Well, I, a poem, because I write to figure things out. I write to, to find out what is real and what is not, and what is me and what is everything else. So I took these stories and I interwove them into a poem called Rape Feud. And I read it in a number of places. One of them was the Writer's Resist reading that we did in 2016, right after Donald Trump became president. It made it into a book called Writer's Resist, Who's Your Writers Unite? Here's an excerpt from Rape Feud. In fugue states, we marry, change our story by changing our names. My grandfather raped my aunt. My great-grandfather raped my great-aunt. Kevin Parker allegedly raped and murdered 15-month-old baby Shaylin Ammerman. In huge stakes, we released the hate we thought we'd buried. In fugue states, we marry, change our names, change our story. Every man I meet is a man I have loved. Every man I meet is the man who raped a woman I did not love. Every man I meet is a man, and I cannot love any more men. One of the other writers included in that text and in that, that reading came to me and said, after reading the poem and said, oh, you're so brave. Oh, you're just so brave. And that's all he could say about the poem is how brave I was to have written it. And while I accept the, the sincerity and kindness with which he delivered that, it's, it has stuck with me for years. It bothers me so much, this message that saying what happened is rape. For a woman to say, my legacy is of rape, is of fathers raping their daughters, and I escaped because my father abandoned me. How is that brave to say? That's what happened. To say that it's brave for me to say that, to write that, implies that I should expect some kind of violence, that I should expect some kind of resistance. There would be some sort of punishment coming for me having said that. And I don't accept that. It wasn't my shame. It wasn't mm -hmm. my sin. It happened to me. Oliver, he can respond to your reactions as a survivor, not as an individual poet. Not as a writer. I had years to meditate on this. I think it's not necessarily men think, okay, we are going to be sexist. It, when they cannot relate, they don't know how to process what's in front of them. They just go to what's familiar and what's comfortable. So your poem was... Was not comfortable. It was not comfortable. <laughs> but oftentimes, when, because the, the female experience hasn't been represented historically, it isn't comfortable for anyone. It's not even comfortable for women, right? We call it history, his story, instead of her story or our story. So it is unfamiliar. It is uncomfortable because... It hasn't been represented. It's not representative of all experience. It's predominantly been representative of male experience. And uh, visibility equates quality often for people. Yes. They don't know how to engage with the artist female. 
we have a ways to go before we don't have to hear the word female next to it. But right now, that's kind of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Well, and compounded greatly if you are also a woman of color, right? Or if you have an accent. Yes. Right? Anything other. Thank you for coming and being vulnerable. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me the safe space, for inviting me, and for being so generous and open. You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Felice Cicek on WFHB. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHB after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhb.org. Up next, we have a weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware. Today's episode is titled, Robocalls Never End. Host Richard Fish says, quote, I've been getting annoying voicemails and take great pleasure in letting you hear them so you'll know they're phonies, end quote. Better Beware airs each Wednesday during the WFHB local news. You can find the program online at WFHB.org. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. The robocalls are coming to get you, coming to get you, and I've been getting them lately. First, there was this friendly gentleman account is qualified for 50% off. In order to reveal the discounts, kindly call us back at 866-616-2111 from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you and have a great day. Wednesday, 11, 13 a.m. Who called back later from another number with another number. Kindly call us back. 877 877- 919-1702. Monday, 1, 41 p.m. Hey, my outgoing voicemail says I don't accept calls from machines, and neither should you. And then there's the amazingly persistent phony medical benefit scammers. First, they called from Worthington, Texas. If you do not act soon, we will label you ineligible for this benefit. Acts? To get more information about your screening test, Please press 1 now. Well, of course I didn't. Or call us back on 716-902-7764. And I didn't do that either. If you wish to opt out from future calls, please press 9 now. And confirm that my phone is live so I get a million more calls? I don't think so. Monday, 9.06 a.m. So I blocked that number. And then I got a call from Thousand, Maryland. If you do not act soon, we will label you ineligible for this benefit. To get more information about your screening test, please press 1 now. Monday, 11, 12 a.m. And I blocked that number, but then... If you do not act soon, we will label you ineligible for this benefit. Monday, 
4.52 p.m. And I blocked that number, but still... If you do not act soon, we will label you ineligible for this benefit. To get more information about your screening test, please press 1 now. Tuesday, 3.46 p.m. End of final message. Well, I hope so. Of course, I'm already ineligible for their health benefit because there isn't one. If you've been getting these calls, I hope you haven't fallen for them. You can block calls on your phone, whether it's a cell phone or a landline. How to do that differs from provider to provider, but it's well worth finding out how to do it. Blocking a number takes only a few seconds, and it actually works most of the time. So far, it's been a whole day, and I haven't gotten a phony health benefit call yet. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs, and these grifters didn't get any of my money, but I got to put them on the radio, because you support WFHB. Thank you. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinsapfel and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Artbeat was produced by Dr. Felice Chichek. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 